When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Project Life Mastery Podcast. I'm Stefan James, founder of ProjectLifeMastery.com, internet entrepreneur and life coach with a passion for living life to the fullest and fulfilling my potential as a human being. My purpose for this podcast is to be a powerful and passionate example of the unlimited possibilities that life offers for any of us that has the courage to commit ourselves to life mastery while sharing ideas, concepts, and strategies that can help you master every area of your life, from your health, mindset, emotions, business, finances, relationships, and spirituality. Now, if you're someone like me that is hungry to take their life to the next level, then you're in the right place. Welcome, and let's begin. Hey everyone, this is Stephen James from Project Life Mastery, and I'm here right now with Chip Cooper, who is an internet attorney and co-founder of FTC Guardian. I've actually been working with Chip now for the last year to help make sure that Project Life Mastery and my products and services are compliant, and I wanted to sit down with you to interview Chip and share them with you guys because a lot of online entrepreneurs, they're building their business, they're marketing, they're selling their products, but oftentimes they neglect the compliance part, the legalities of their business, and really paying attention to that you know, and sometimes some you know business owners they get in trouble, um, and we want to make sure that doesn't happen to you. So we're going to discuss a lot about what you need to know to make sure that your business is compliant, and make sure that you're not breaking any rules of the internet, and making sure that you're safe. And if you guys want to work deeper with Chip, I'll provide resources for him that you guys can dive into and check out. So if you're selling physical products, information products, affiliate marketing. You're going to want to make sure that you pay attention to what we're going to share with you guys today. So, Chip, thank you so much for taking well, the time. Thanks for having me. How, uh, how did you get into becoming an internet attorney? Like, how long have you been working on the internet side? Because, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of attorneys out there, but few that really specialize in what, what you do. Well, it's really a transition from a software legal practice. And I've been involved with software companies for almost the entire industry, if you can imagine that. And as they transitioned into online companies from the traditional model of delivering software to be loaded on the customer's premises to online, where you have a password and an ID to log into a server, once that started happening, then the natural progression was to get involved with online businesses because the software companies had become online businesses. So then I made that transition uh, from there. So that's how it got started. Wow. So how long have you been working with different business owners online? Well, online, I think the big, the big event was 2009. Prior to that time, for a couple of three years, I started working with them. But the big event in 2009 was uh, by the Federal Trade Commission, and more about the FTC in just a minute, but beginning in 2009, there was what I call a tsunami of new laws and regulations prior to that time 
a lot of us refer to it as the wild, wild west. Yeah. Just about anything was, you know, every, yeah, whatever. But beginning in 09, we saw a lot of new regulations and very aggressive enforcement. So once that started, people started listening to me a little right, bit. Right. And, and that's, when, that's when I became more involved. And then in, later in 2014, got together with Alan Cutts to form FTC Guardian. But that would have never happened if the FTC hadn't really taken an aggressive attitude beginning in 09. Right. And, and I remember with the FTC, there's a lot of big cases that were coming out. Big right? cases. Lawsuits, and I guess that's what got a lot yeah, of Yeah, it got everybody's attention, attention right? Yeah. So because of that, then we felt like there was a need. And, and the real purpose behind FTC Guardian is to provide a source for people who either just don't feel comfortable hiring attorneys like me. Obviously, there's a significant expense involved, right? Where, where, do, where do you get the training and the documents and the strategies you need to do business safely online, uh, particularly involved in the regulatory environment? Well, we have a training program now. That's what FTC Guardian's all about, documents plus training and strategies. So that would have never been an important part of this new industry if there hadn't been the aggressive enforcement. So that's what happened. Got it. And we're going to make sure to link to FTC Guardian because... It's an amazing membership site that gives you a lot of what you need in sure to get all the agreements and contracts and training and you know what you guys need to protect your business. So we'll link to that below for you guys. But in terms of the internet, how is it regulated and I guess governed? Is it primarily through the FTC? Because primarily, and and here's where you need to start. You need to understand that the vast majority, I think, of products and services marketed online are marketed to consumers, right? People like you and me. In fact. You're a marketer, I'm a marketer, and we wear two hats at least. I mean, we're consumers and we're also marketers. But there's this, this, this underlying assumption by the Federal Trade Commission that the general population of consumers are basically ignorant and easily fooled by um, unsavory advertisers, right? And so because of that, uh, that concern, the FTC was started years ago, the Federal Trade Commission, as the preeminent federal regulatory body to protect consumers against uh, scam advertising, right? So that's how it all started. And the idea, of course, consumers need serious protection. So what you have with the FTC are remedies that do not exist in the normal civil litigation realm. For example, the FTC can appoint a receiver to take over your business. Oh, wow. That's not, not going to happen in the normal civil litigation world. They can freeze yeah. your bank accounts and all of your assets. That's not available. So you have these extraordinary remedies. In fact, it really doesn't matter where the marketer is physically located. Right. Canada, Europe, wherever, as long as they're selling into the United States, they're regulated. So, so and, and the fact that they may be operating in a corporate or LLC entity, that doesn't matter either because the, the Federal Trade Commission can pierce that remedy or that entity to go after the personal assets. So there's really no way, there's no trick, there's no silver bullet to avoid FTC regulation if you're marketing to consumers located here in the United States. Your, your only option is to become compliant. Yeah. 
So if you operate in a, biz, a company, they can pierce that. If you're in Canada or Europe selling in, they can go after you there. So they've got a lot of power that uh, you don't see in our legal system, generally speaking. That's a really important point because, yeah, I think a lot of people might think, well, I don't live in the United States, my corporation's not in the U.S., and so therefore I don't have to be compliant with it. But what you're saying is they have the power, regardless of where you are, to be able to go after you. Um, now, in terms of the FTC, you know, let me ask you this on the consumer side of things. Because the FTC is in place, are there certain things a consumer can do that can prevent themselves from being scammed or you know, fraudulent type of things? Because I do know that is still a concern that consumers have. They're worried about if I buy this product online or this service. Because there is, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people that aren't compliant or that do scam people online. Is there anything for the consumer side of things they can do to protect themselves? Well, just about everywhere you turn these days, there is an option to file a complaint of some kind. You can go to the FTC, file a consumer complaint. You can go to the Better Business Bureau. There are a number of of sub-entities that are affiliated with the Better Business Bureau. You can go there. There are a number of consumer activists who have websites. Truthinlending.org is one of them. You can file a complaint. But that happens when you already have suffered a claim, right? So the best defense is common sense, right? If it's too good to be true, if the ad is too good to be true, then there's probably something wrong with it. So common sense is probably the best defense. And do your due diligence. And And all that stuff, yeah. Okay. Now, um, in terms of the FTC, and it's, it's, there's, there's kind of a lot of different things, I think, to be compliant, but what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see a lot of online marketers make that you notice and observe or clients that you work with? Or what are the most common things you see as mistakes that they are making to, and then you help them to try to make sure they're compliant? There are two areas. One would be documents that you typically see on a website. And the the most important one probably is the privacy policy, right? And then the other side would not be documents, but strategies that the advertiser has used uh, without understanding what the rules are. So if you go back to the privacy policy, a very important document because generally speaking, it's supposed to describe the personal information and other information you collect, the elements of it, what are name, email address, that sort of thing why you collect it, how you use it, and how you share it or make it available to others, among other things, right? And an important point to, I think, take, take into consideration is that the FTC views the statements and assurances in the privacy policy. We will not sell your personal information. We will not provide it to any other party unless we get acquired or a court order requires us to do so or it's necessary for the operation of our website, that sort of thing. So the the assurances and the statements you make are viewed by the FTC as promises to consumers. The idea is that the consumer can click on that link at the bottom of these web pages, privacy policy link, if they want to. And I'm not quite sure that that many actually do it, right? right? But if it's there, it can be viewed. And if they decide that you're sharing policies for their personal information or not satisfactory, they can decide not to do business with you. That's the idea behind it. Now, of course, that assumes most consumers actually read these things, which I'm not sure they do. But the FTC says that these statements and assurances are promises. And if you violate those, it's a deceptive marketing practice. 
So if you say that you only collect certain elements of information, but you actually collect more, that's deceptive. If you say that your sharing and making assess accessible to others is within these defined limits, but you exceed those, that's deceptive. So it's breaking your promise in the privacy policy, and that's the reason why we tell our members. In fact, a lot of them in our uh, live, what we call hangouts, where we do Q&A with our members twice a month, they'll say, well, um, I copied this privacy policy from this website that I know is really pretty, pretty good at these things, and I'm sure that they have legal representation, and you know, I think it's probably a pretty good privacy policy. The problem with that is there can be a copyright infringement claim by the law firm. And we've gotten several calls from people who've been threatened uh, by law firms because the, the, the privacy policy was on their client's website and this, this guy copied it. The real problem is that the, the assurances and statements in the copied policy fit that website and their business model, but they don't fit yours. And so they make promises that you're not aware of or don't think about and put you in a position almost of being uh, liable for deceptive practice without even thinking about it. So it's not a good idea to copy someone else's. You need to have your own that's tailored to what you do. So if the website documents, that privacy policy is probably top priority. But then the strategies to answer your question, what we see is that there is a huge lack of understanding about the fundamentals of advertising. And a lot of people don't view themselves. I'm sure a lot of your members probably don't view themselves as advertisers. They think of advertisers as people on TV or, you know, in, in the print media, that sort of thing. But they are if they're making claims about what their products or services will do. Save 47% on your heating bills, lose 10 pounds in your first month, or make a certain amount of money in a certain specified period of time. Those statements are ad claims. And an ad claim is a term of art with the Federal Trade Commission. That's what they're looking for when they go to your website or a social media post. They're looking for those claims. And once they determine what they are, and that can be either what you actually say in the specific language or what you imply and what a consumer infers from it, even, even with respect to images. On a make money type situation, you have a guy standing beside a Ferrari. Right. That that image yeah. conveys, you know, certain a certain part of the claim that you're making. So when you take all of that together, the express and implied claims, it's called the net impression that a consumer reaches. Now the marketer wants that net impression to be, I'm in agreement with the call to action, whatever that is. Click here, buy now, whatever, right? But that claim has to be substantiated by competent and reliable scientific evidence, and that's a pretty significant burden. So the real question is, what are the ad claims, or do you even know that you're making them, right? And if you do, then what are the substantiation burdens that you have, and how might you consider other alternatives that may not have quite the risk involved in terms of substantiation? In fact, you can do what we call puffery, which is at the bottom of the list, no risk at all. It's braggadocio and exaggerated claims that no reasonable consumer would rely upon. Yeah. Greatest whatever in the world. Nobody's going to believe that, right? So we don't, we don't hold a, an advertiser responsible. So you can make those kinds of uh, claims 
without any risk. And then in the middle, this category we call weasel words. Make up to X dollars. Lose up to so many pounds. So there might be a, the less of a substantial substantiation burden there. So the strategy is knowing what the ad claim really is, knowing the consequences and the substantiation burden, and then saying, well, now, wait a minute. There may be some strategies to modify this claim a little bit so that my risk is substantially less and my conversions are going to be the same. Got it. And I think that's so, useful for consumers, too, because they can know if someone you know, is saying to you in their ad that you're going to make this amount of money or you're going to lose 10 pounds or you're going to do this right. or that, you can't substantiate that. So that's kind of a red flag to something to be wary of versus you know, what you're saying, you know, make up to or it may help or it may support. It fights this. cavities, this, this gum or something, yeah. you know, all these claims. So the weasel words can help. Now, if you, if you look up weasel words, if you Google the term, there's a lot of negative connotation about weasel words in general. But the FTC doesn't care about that. The FTC only cares about what the, what the consumer infers from the use of that, right? Helps fight cholesterol. Well, what does that really mean? Uh, the, it may mean that to most consumers that it might help and the substantiation burden is substantially lower, therefore the legal risk. So if you're, a, if you're an advertiser and know that, you have the opportunity to pick and choose the strategies. But we find that very few beginning uh, online businesses really understand these options. So our job is to say, you know, there's a whole array of different levels of risk here. You don't have to be up here on the highest level to still get really good conversions. You need to know you know, where the other options are and then make a business decision. So a lot of it's just the education and presenting these options. And so there's just, there's no, no such thing as the right or wrong way to do it. There are understanding the rules and the options and choices among various levels of risk. And also the conversion situation is an important one, right? So conversions, risk, and all the options, you take that in consideration and you make a decision. That's what we try to teach to our members, not just you've got to do it this way, right? That just doesn't work. What about testimonials, uh, success stories, endorsements? You know, the, you see those all the time and you know, I know there's disclaimers and things that, you know, results not typical. What are ways that you could present those and make sure you're still compliant? Very interesting. So before 09, you could have a superstar success story, testimonial. I lost an amazing amount of pounds, but usually the classic one would be, I made so much money in a certain period of time with this system, right? And all you had to do as an advertiser would be to place the disclosure, your results may vary, or something very similar to that. You just alluded to it, and you were fine because you were, you were disclaiming the fact that it would apply to anyone and everyone. You know, I might not be able to make that much money in the first month. That's the idea. Beginning in 09, that doesn't work anymore at all. And it's still available to be used as a disclaimer, but standing alone, it won't work. Standing alone, you need to be able to say, if you're posting an ad on your website or in a post or whatever, and it's a success story testimonial, you need to be able to present what the, what the average customer should generally expect 
unless, unless you can substantiate that just about everybody can achieve the same result of the superstar, which you cannot, yeah, right? Yeah, prove that. Yeah. So, so you generally say, expect to lose one to two pounds a week. That's what Nutrisystem does. In fact, if you go there to their testimonials, you'll see that you see at the very top a headline of, uh, you know, I lost 67 pounds. They don't say within three months because that would, that would create a higher burden. They just say, I lost 68 pounds. And then there's a lot of puffery or, or opinion testimonial on the side saying, I feel so good about myself which is not substantiated and fine. And then at the very bottom under their photograph with an asterisk, it's expect to lose one to two pounds a month, which is the classic example of how to do it. So that's, you know, the, the whole idea of success story testimonials is really important because it's a great marketing tool, strategy, tactic, but you've got to be able to understand how to use those rules. Yeah. How about endorsements? Um, I know if it's like a paid endorsement, you have to disclose that. And essentially what the FTC wants, they want transparency, Correct. honesty of all these things. You really know your stuff. Well, you know, I learned <laughs> from the best here. <laughs> but you really do, you've, yeah. you've done your. So, so the one thing that's really sort of a big deal now, at least entertainment wise, in terms of legal stuff, is the FIRE Festival. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was a tremendous uh, music festival that was supposed to be the launch of, a, of an app, uh, an online to be used as, as a way to bring uh, talent together with people who are willing to pay for it. For you know, the big party, you bring in a celebrity and they, they entertain, right? And so there was this fire festival in the Caribbean in 2017. And, it's the, and, and there is a documentary right now that's just been released in the last month uh, by Netflix, an hour and a half documentary on how this was promoted through influencers, right? And I believe uh, Hulu also has one as well. And the idea is they blew up influencer marketing. In fact, they did more than I think they ever dreamed that they could do in terms of the conversions in such a rapid period of time. It was marketing genius what they did. The problem was they didn't control these, uh, these disclosures that should be made. Some were made, many were not, and they oversold this darn thing and they couldn't deliver it. And it was a total disaster. Yeah. And uh, I've watched the, uh, the documentary and it's amazing. What was it called, the documentary? The Fire Festival, F-Y-R-E. Yeah. It's on Netflix. It's That's on right. Netflix and it's very new and a lot of people are watching it. And it's a classic example of internet marketing gone crazy, right? right? The over-the-top promotion was beyond, I think, their wildest dreams yeah. about the success of it, and then they couldn't deliver it. So, and they also didn't control the, uh, and, and the, the promoter's in jail now. Yeah. He's yeah. behind bars as yeah. we speak, yeah. and there are a lot of agencies and influencers who are having to answer to the FTC now for not disclosing uh, the fact that it was a paid promotion. A lot of influencers, via, a lot of very glamorous models. Instagram. Yeah, all that stuff, Instagram, yeah. So you have to disclose this is a paid endorsement, yeah. be transparent. And then also, what about affiliate marketing as well? If there's an affiliate link that someone's using on their website, I know you have to disclose that also. Affiliate marketers have been a, a big concern of the Federal Trade Commission for a long time. And the reason is they're not selling their own products or services. They're promoting other people's services. 
and they don't get paid unless they convert. And so they have an incentive to go over the top and step over the line a little bit, right? And at a legal conference I attended, I'm guessing it's probably five or six years ago now in Austin, Texas, Technology Law Conference. I think it's the best I've seen. One of the speakers at that time was an attorney as part of the FTC. His, he was heading up the whole privacy and data security division of the Federal Trade Commission. And he gave a great talk on all the latest enforcement activities in the area of privacy and data security. And I wanted to talk to this guy, you know, an FTC attorney. So I followed him out into the lobby area and I started asking him questions. And he was very generous with his answers and his time, right? And then I said, let me just ask you what your greatest concern is. And I thought he was going to say something about privacy policies not being, you know, don't live up to your promises or something like that. And he said, it's, it's affiliates. And I said, you don't even deal. He said, no. But the entire uh, bureau here is concerned about them for all the reasons I just mentioned. So the idea here is that the affiliate is really, there, there are two hats that he or she would wear. One would be an advertiser representing some other person's product or service. But as an advertiser, the affiliate is held to the substantiation burden. So if it's your product I'm selling as an affiliate, I should have some uh, informed opinion that, that you can substantiate the claims I'm making about your product, right? So I'm an advertiser and that's a big substantiation burden. And so for me, if I allow you to be an affiliate, I'm also responsible for my affiliates. You really well. are yeah. up to speed yeah. on this I stuff. Do a lot of affiliate marketing. So. <laughs> More about that in just a minute. But the other hat that, that I would wear, first of all, as an advertiser, just mentioned, the second would be I'm an endorser of you. So I need to be able to disclose that I'm being compensated, that I'm not just recommending these products because I believe, honestly, that they're really good. I mean, that might be part of it, but if I'm being paid for it, I need to at least let a consumer know that my opinion, my endorsement may not be completely objective. I mean, in fact, I like to review or read the reviews on Amazon, and I take some measure of credi the credibility of them when they say that it, it's, a, it's a verified review, right? Because it's, it's somebody giving, they're not paid, Right, and they're giving an honest opinion. But if, if the person's being paid or has some other special relationship as a consumer, I'd like to know about it. And so an affiliate is required to do that as well. Yeah. Well, I know with Amazon, because there's a lot of Amazon sellers, they tend to give away their product or discount it so that they can get the review. But Amazon has their policies and they want people to disclose, yeah. hey, I got this product at a discount for free and providing this, but you gotta disclose that. And I think, I think just the honesty, as simple as it is, is the best solution the best to things, solution. right? And I think, you know, it actually doesn't necessarily hurt conversions because I think the consumer appreciates it, right? The yeah. consumer, they appreciate, it's refreshing for them to hear that. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And one area would be um, YouTube videos. And particularly, one of the areas I think of greatest concern is the unboxing videos. The new iPhone or, or the new laptop, whatever it is, You'll see the guy opening the box, and he'll describe the, all the various contents, and then he'll give a little review. Now, was that iPhone or new laptop provided uh, complimentary by Apple, or was it paid for? It needs to be 
disclosed. You know, if, if it was a, a free review copy, it needs to be said. And if it's not a free one, uh, if, if it's not free, it needs to be said. Even if it's free, it's a good idea to say, I didn't pay, I mean, you know, the whole thing, the truth. So you'll find a lot of concern with respect to YouTube videos. I think, you know, a lot of people, I wonder, people that are getting started, I find they don't, they think, oh, I'm small, you know, that I'm not, I'm under the radar right now, and it's more of the big companies that the FTC targets. I mean, what, what are your opinions on that? Should, you know, obviously people should try to make sure they're compliant as much as possible. And one thing we've had discussions about is you said there's no perfect compliance. There's no 100% compliance of anything. But, um, you know, in terms of someone that's getting started, should they be, you know, invest the money? They might not have the money to have a lawyer to really make sure that everything is compliant. But, what, 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 you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that for someone that's more getting started? Well, when you're getting started and you're small, the general misconception is that you're so small you can hide on the back row or fly under the radar, that sort of thing. And there may be some truth to that, but generally speaking, there isn't. And it sort of changed around 2014. About that time, the FTC started being less concerned with all the big guys and started drilling down because I think their concern was there were a lot of people flying under the radar. So all of a sudden you start seeing a, a number of cases against smaller companies, very small companies. Uh, one in particular, I believe about two years ago, was selling office supplies online, a husband and wife team, right? And there were some issues there that I won't go into. So the FTC goes after them and a uh, very small business and, decide, and, and makes some serious claims and then holds them personally liable, even though they were operating as, a, as an entity, right, for $6 million, which they couldn't come up with, right? So the FTC then has an affidavit signed by these people who have the judgment against them, itemizing every asset they have. And the idea is if they withhold anything, then the full $6 million and so, six million five, I think, was going to come back. But if they played ball and were truthful and gave a very detailed accounting of their assets and signed the the affidavit under oath, then the FTC was going to take those assets in lieu of hounding for, for the rest of their life for the cash, right? So that's what happened. And the FTC took, I think, four homes, a small office building, a ranch, four or five cars, an antique Corvette, right? And they raised, the FTC sold those assets, raised about $600,000, and then sent uh, refunds to a lot of their customers because they'd been overcharged. But this was a small business that really got uh, about the worst that the FTC can dish out, personal liability and all of that. So, you know, not all small businesses, the FTC doesn't have the resources to go after everybody. But you're out there, and if you're, if you're not really playing by the rules, you're subject to that. And the FTC is now, and has been since 2014, really looking to the small business. So for that reason, small businesses need to have a way to protect themselves. They either need to get a lawyer, which is fairly expensive, you know, a guy like me, or find another opportunity to you know, acquire the knowledge and training and documents, and that's what FTC Guardian does. That's what we do. Now, a lot of uh, one question I get all the time for people that are just starting out to build their business is, do I need an LLC? Do I need a corporation, uh, or can I just be a sole proprietor? You know, I, you know, people want to make sure they protect themselves, obviously. But when someone's first starting out, 
what would be the answer that you'd recommend most often? Highly recommended that you do business in an entity, corporation or LLC, because generally speaking, it will protect your personal assets from any type of lawsuit, except for the Federal Trade Commission, right? That's the exception. So it's good advice. You hear it all over, and it's, you know, it's good advice, but it won't protect you. It's not the silver bullet with respect to the FTC. Um, a quick comment about choice, which is not really my area, but my partner does this. Um, the, the, the corporation is usually the less expensive option. And one of the reasons is corporate statutes in, in various states have all these bylaw provisions. All you have to do is sort of have a canned set of bylaws that adopt all the statutory provisions. So it's really cheap and easy to create one, generally speaking. The FTC was created, or the, excuse me, the, the, um, the other one was created in order to provide some opportunities for tax planning. And so the operating agreement in an LLC can be very complicated. So for that reason, it's typically a little more expensive for an attorney to create one for you. So uh, either one is gonna be fine from a liability standpoint. Got it, and I know some of my audience is more outside the United States. I know in Canada, we don't have an LLC but corporation, but wherever you are, some sort of corporate entity. And there's you know typically tax advantages too, so you could always consult with an accountant because you know there might be advantages there uh, right. as well. Um, in terms of other ways maybe they could protect themselves from being sued or whatever it might be, are there other agreements, contracts people should have in place, whether it's on their website or if they're selling a physical product? What, what kind of protocols can people have in place to make sure they're protected? Well, we mentioned the privacy policy earlier. That's very important. But probably the other document that you need to have is some kind of an agreement that binds you with your customer, right? Your customer... Um, you know, uh, has various rights and you need to have this contract with your customer to limit your liability, among other things, correctly, legally, and also to nail down your right to get paid and how you're supposed to get paid. I mean, if you just are selling something with a shopping cart, uh, that's not binding your, your customer to the terms and conditions. So you're going to have to have a generally speaking, a customer agreement. You might call it a membership agreement. It might be a subscription agreement. It might be terms and conditions, you know, whatever the name is, but it's got to be an enforceable contract. And a lot of people believe that these terms of use that you see linked at the bottom of the page, usually right beside the privacy policy, uh, is a binding contract. It's not. And the reason is that it's there it might be clicked on by a visitor. It probably won't be. So there cannot be a contract, an enforceable agreement, without both sides acknowledging acceptance of it, yeah. right? And in the old-fashioned uh, non-digital world, that, that action is the signature on a piece of paper, right. an overt action of signing the darn thing, mm -hmm. right? In the online world, it's a click on an I agree or maybe the checkbox with check, I agree with the terms and conditions, which is linked to the terms and conditions. So that has to be there in order to create a binding contract. So it's not going to be the terms, the terms of use that might apply if a visitor to your website just clicks on it. It's got to be something that's presented either before checkout or during checkout that requires an affirmative act like a checkbox 
or clicking an I agree button. And then, of course, it's got to match your business model, right? It's got to do that. So that is an extremely important document to have. Got it. So in the cases of websites like Amazon.com, like Amazon's the one dealing with the consumer, but when you set up your Amazon account, you're agreeing. When you set up your profile and everything, you're agreeing to their agreement, their terms and conditions, um, and then everything you buy thereafter on Amazon is based on that initial agreement that you set up with them. Right. Is that typically how it works? Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, with every big Facebook and Twitter, but you got to have that if you have your own website, you got to make sure that you have that as well. And I know that Chip has done some great work with us to help us get that in place. Um, what about, you know, in terms of physical products, um, having certain disclaimers, like if you're selling a supplement, if you're selling, you know, making sure you have um, consult with your doctor or your physician, like those are sort of things that can help protect someone if they have that on the website, but also on the product itself? Yes, but now, now you're moving into a sensitive area. When you're talking about supplements, um, and the, you have at least two federal regulatory bodies. You have the FDA, Federal Drug Administration, and the FTC, many times, sometimes working independently, but many times working together, right? And the FTC has been very aggressive in trying to sort of, I was talking to a supplement uh, manufacturer today at this event. The FTC has tried to push the requirements for substantiation for a supplement into the area that might have been at, at, at a level for drugs, you know, where you've got to have randomized controlled tests and trials and all this stuff, which the cost for that is beyond what a, a small marketer can possibly do. You're talking about what a large pharmaceutical company can afford to do sometimes millions of dollars to have those types of tests run to support. So there's a lot of uh, uncertainty right now with respect to these, uh, these supplements. You, it's still okay, and it's a step in the right direction to have this, this disclaimer that you just mentioned. But in many cases, depending on the claims made, that's not going to be quite enough. So one rule of thumb is, for goodness sakes, do not claim that it cures a disease or a medical condition. For example, uh, a weight loss supplement. Um, obesity is a medical condition, so you don't use that term. You just say something like helps you maintain a healthy weight, right? right? So you stay away from these terms that are actual diseases or medical conditions, and you use the weasel words, helps you whatever, helps fight, support right? helps support, that sort of thing. And then that, together with the, uh, with the disclaimer and some substantiation of, this, of the in ingredients in the supplement, maybe not your own study, maybe somebody else's, but it's a legitimate study, that combination may work. But it's, it's still an element of risk right now because of what the FTC has wanted to do, which is to push it into the level of, of drugs in terms of substantiation requirements. And then what about um, content marketers, people that are providing information, whether it's in a blog or a YouTube video or social media, and they're giving advice to other people, um, whether it's health advice or whether it's um, business advice, anything they can do to help protect themselves? Well, I think, I think the disclaimer, a carefully worded disclaimer, yeah. is probably the best. Okay. Uh, but 
you know, there are certain areas where it's more sensitive. The health area is one, financial is another one. In fact, I was talking to a number of people earlier today about, in fact, a couple of agencies particularly about uh, concerns in the health and finance area, about, you know, training in that area and that could be maybe not a promise for certain results, but might be construed by a consumer as a promise, right? Very sensitive, health and finance. So disclaimers and being very careful with the language is very important. Got it. Anything else that people need to know just in terms to be compliant and make sure that uh, they don't run into any challenges online? Well, I think, I think one of the biggest things is there has to be a certain general understanding of what the FTC is all about and how it works. And it starts with understanding a, an ad claim and what the requirements are and, if you understand, and, and how testimonials fit in with that. Because you're not allowed to have a customer make a claim indirectly that you're not going to be making as the advertiser if you made it yourself. So all of that ties together and I think that's where you need to start. And once you understand that, then the rest of it starts making sense. You know, I mean, if you understand the rules and the options you have in ad claims and testimonials, then you might start thinking, well, native ads, which are in a context which makes them not appear to be an ad, might be deceptive because a, a consumer doesn't even know it's an ad. It thinks it's, an, you know, some sort of an opinion piece or news piece. So all of a sudden, the basic knowledge from ad claims and testimonials starts you know, bleeding out into other areas and making sense out of it all. So that's part of it. And then the next part is having a resource that you can go back to, to either do a search for material that we have, for example, at FTC Guardian. We've got twice a month, we do live hangouts for our members on new topics in most cases that are new developments. Uh, and all of those uh, videos are recorded. So you can do a search for that and see everything we've done. Plus, it's a way to stay up and stay current. So we tell our members, look, you can't learn it all in a, you know, in a month or a year, but you can get started with the basics, ad claims, testimonials, and then start attending these hangouts, and all of it starts making more sense. And now you're sort of up on the latest developments, and you're you're now involved in the rules of the game that you play in, right? And the idea is not to be knowledgeable at my level, and your level is quite impressive, by the way, but to have a working knowledge, just a working knowledge of the rules of the game you play in. That's all. Yeah. So I, I highly recommend FTC Guardian, and I actually am an affiliate for you guys, so I'll disclose that. And uh, if you guys want to check it out, go to projectlifemastery.com slash FTC Guardian. We'll link to that below. And one last question too, just kind of going back to the, the information piece. Um, what about just in terms of copyright? Like if someone's creating content online, whether it's a book or whether it's uh, videos or whatever, how can they protect that content to make sure that people don't violate uh, that? Do they have to actually copyright it or is it just by law, once you publish it, it's protected. Very interesting. We do cover that. Even though the name FTC Guardian seems to imply that we're isolated just with it, we're not. We cover intellectual property issues that relate to what most internet marketers, online businesses are doing, which is creating content, right? So the best thing to do is put a copyright notice on it, 
right? So here is the acronym, C-Y-A, cover C-Y-A, right? And the C is the copyright word, copyright, and or the symbol, C in a circle. Y stands for year, the year of first publication. So if it's this year, 2019. And A is the name of the author. Is it your corporation or you individually? C-Y-A. That's clearly what you need to do. But the one issue here is using someone else's material. Stuff that you get, you might in a Google... um, image search or you get off of social media and you like to use it in one of your promotions, you need to understand that there's a rule of automatic copyright, meaning that the moment that you take that photograph and if you're the photographer, you have created copyright, even without putting a notice on it. It was created by you and at the moment it was created, it came into being. So all of these images you see on social media, on searches, on Google, they were created by, by a photographer who owns the copyrights unless they've been sold or transferred. So it's not there. It's, it's viral maybe, but it's not free for taking and use. You need to be very careful with that. But to protect your own stuff, put a copyright notice on it. Awesome. Such great advice. I think right. my audience is going to be very well educated on this. And again, if you want to go deeper, which I highly recommend that you do to check out his work at FDC Guardian. Any, any final message you want to share with people that are watching this? Well, one, one message, I guess, is, and I think about it a lot, is things have changed a lot in the last five to seven years, um, and particularly since '09, which, you know, as I mentioned, was a big, a big date in, in, in regulation on the Internet and people working there and, and providing, you know, businesses. Uh, and I'm wondering where it's all headed, right, because we have this GDPR, which we didn't mention. We're not going to go into it, but we have data privacy and data security regulations in the European Union that have a reach to us in the U.S. because if we collect their data and use it, process it, we're subject to the rules, right? And now you have a number of states in the United States that are sort of doing uh, GDPR light statutes. And it's really, I mean, I, I try my best to keep up with this and it's somewhat different. And California now has come out with a new statute that's going to be in effect one one twenty twenty, that also affects businesses and how they use data. So we've gone from a uh, completely uh, an environment, the wild, wild west, where anything would go, and people made a lot of money back in those days, to to a time period starting in '09 where. You know, all of a sudden we go up this slope of, of regulation, and I thought we'd probably hit about where, you know, we need to sort of level off a little bit around, yeah. around 2016, 2017. But no, we have more regulation coming. And so if you're a small business, there almost appears to be barriers to entry now that didn't exist just a few years ago. Yeah. And so you really need a source to help you stay current and conversant with what is going on. It's happening at a very rapid rate. And that's what we believe is a great service that we offer. I mean, membership is uh, very reasonably priced. And once you're in there as a member, you have access to live access to me and my partner, Alan Cutts, twice a month, where we have open questions about the topic that we choose for discussion or anything else. It's a great way to stay up with what is a moving target now in terms of regulation. And one thing I love about your membership is 
if you guys need the templates and the agreements, you guys have all that there for people as well. Right. So they can save a lot of money rather than you know hiring someone directly because that could be a lot more expensive. And so that's a great starting place for anybody. But um, I just want to thank you for your time, Chip. Well, thank you it's been for a pleasure. having me. Thank you for sharing with my audience. And again, check out FTC Garden, Guardian. Again, we'll have a link below for you guys to check out and learn more. But thank you guys for watching. If you enjoyed it, hit a thumbs up here on YouTube. Share this with someone that could also use this information as well. I know you probably know other entrepreneurs, business owners that could benefit from this. And leave a comment below. Thanks again. We'll see you in the next video. Thanks for joining me today and listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or received any value, then I'd love for you to leave an honest review on iTunes and subscribe to the Project Life Mastery podcast for future episodes. And of course, to receive more content and value, make sure to find and follow me at www.projectlifemastery.com for more. Thanks again. Remember to always believe and commit your life to mastery. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.